You're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. Conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Cornell. Welcome to another episode of Degrees of Freedom. Malcolm, it's nice to be here with you again in the studio. Thank you. And to talk about a topic that is making the rounds everywhere in the social media, in the news, also in education circles, and that is the topic of chat GPT, what often is called artificial intelligence. We'll talk about whether this is, um, this is the case or not. But it's a topic that has caused a lot of discussion and a lot of panic in some circles in higher education and making us rethink what it is that we're doing here. And in order to, to start this discussion and start thinking about how to approach the use of chat GPT in education, what it means for us, uh, what it means for our students' work, what it means for our work as, uh, as teachers and educators, we're really lucky to have two guests with us today who will help with this discussion. And Malvina Nissim from uh, the Faculty of Arts and Patrick Darwinkel, also a recent graduate from a program in the Faculty of Arts. Welcome, both of you. Uh, please uh, introduce yourselves. Tell us who you are. Malvina, can we start with you? Yes. Uh, thanks, Tassos. Thanks for having me. Uh, um, Malvina Nisim, I'm a professor of uh, computational linguistics and society at the Faculty of Arts here in uh, Groningen. And um, I do research in natural language processing, which is at the core of <laughs> what we're going to talk about today. And I teach at the Faculty of Arts in a bachelor, um, which is called information science, and also master in information science. I also teach in a, a university-wide minor, which is called data-wise. Um, and yes, I'm very interested in actually not only the research, which is all behind this, but the impact that uh, it has on society and, of course, also on, on education in this particular case. Yeah, we'll talk about exactly those uh, topics today. Um, Patrick, also welcome to Degrees of Freedom. Um, also graduate from this information science bachelor that Malvina just mentioned, a very special minor um, uh, being where it is. Yeah, th thank you for your uh, warm welcome. Um, yes, so I recently graduated from information science um, and I currently work as a software engineer in a local company here in Groningen. Um, I mostly work on software in the security domain and I also do some machine learning related projects. Um, and also my bachelor's thesis was very closely related to the, the fundamental technology that they use in ChatGPT and uh, similar models. Um, so yes. <laughs> Can I mention how we met? Yeah, please. Yeah, so um, I met Patrick because uh, he was a student in the Information Science Bachelor, and exactly last year, for the first time, we introduced a course at the Bachelor in the last year of the Bachelor, uh, which is called uh, Ethical Aspects in Natural Language Processing. And we thought it was really urgent to introduce that. We didn't have it before, and that's because it's really at the core now of an ongoing discussion in the field. But it's a very new field, in a way, than, you know, compared to others. So all the ethical implications are just being discussed in the recent years. So we didn't have a course like that. And I think overall in the world, you know, the world is sort of waking up to this. Mm -hmm. So we introduced this, and this was the first time I was teaching that. And uh, Patrick was one of the students. And we had a lot of really lively interactions in class. And 
specifically with Patrick. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, it uh, it was a wonderful course. Uh, so thank you again uh, for <laughs> no, no. But sometimes for the the first time a course is given is always uh, sometimes there are some uh, logistical and uh, programming problems. Uh, but no, it was very smooth smooth experience overall. And I, I think that the introduction of the course couldn't have been at a better moment. It was when we had a course last year. Uh, all the all the fancy new image models and language models were becoming very popular very fast. And um, I especially liked that in um, during the course you actually had these new very recent news snippets, uh, sometimes only a couple of days old, um, which really highlighted the, the the huge you know exponential curve that language technology is on right now. Um, so maybe we can start with this, a little bit of a historical perspective of how it is that we find ourselves here today in 2023 in February with, what is it, ChatGPT or GPT 3.5 at the moment. We were at version 3 last summer. Version 4, I think, is coming up soon. Um, uh, what is it, Google Bard is just come out uh, with its own... Um, uh, splashes and its own mistakes in uh, in uh, in introduction. You talked about it being a very timely introduction last year, but how long have these be- things been around? What have they been capable of doing? What can they do today? What can we expect them to do? And really, what are they? Yeah, it. So I think <coughs> what we are seeing right now is yeah, an an ongoing development which for some maybe looks a little bit out of the blue, but of course it's not out of the blue. I think what's out of the blue is the way that it's been deployed now with direct interaction with just the, with just everyone, with the general public. But in the research environment, of course, we've seen more step-by-step developments. I cannot say that we were not taken by surprise by this last development with ChatGPT because it was a leap in in quality, in what it's able to do, uh, not so much in the technology, although we don't know everything about it, but w- what they are, uh, they're, so they're the, the, the core of ChatGPT is a language model. And the language model is um, a neural network, basically, which has an architecture, which is called a transformer. And the, the, the core of ChatGPT is this model um, and what it learns to do from a huge amount of data that it, it is exposed to is simplifying very much what I'm saying, but it's learning to predict the next word that comes in a sentence. And it's a, it's a heavy uh, simplification of what it does because by doing this um, in a iterative way, actually, it also learns more about context and how things are structured within context, so it learns a lot. And by having these pretty complex architectures, it can make connections between different parts of the discourse. So it learns not just, you know, it's it's not only the, the, the previous word that it's looking at, it's, it's a bigger situation, let's say. But it, it is really just learning how to produce language. It's not directly learning information it's not an information rich i mean it will become so as a byproduct but what it's learning to do is basically to make sentences to produce discourse and by doing that of course uh, because it's to do that it's exposed to a lot of data it will also learn what's contained in this data somehow 
but it's not that he has knowledge about facts or so. It's just producing data in a way that is similar to what it's seen before. It's not reproducing exactly that, so it can abstract away and it can produce new things, but nothing of that, so all of it, it's all internal to its model. Nothing of that is checked out with some external source at the moment of production. So this is the core of ChatGPT, but and it's called GPT, which stands for Generalized Pre-trained Transformer, uh, and it has several versions. So it's progressing, as you said. GPT four is coming out, but it's not only that. It's called so GPT as a model was out for a long time, also, and it was accessible, especially for research purposes, also in its previous versions. And we did use it. It's not that it wasn't there. We weren't like, oh, what is this? But What's new in ChatGPT is that it has this interactive mode, which makes it um, like directly interacting with the general public. So in a, in a way that is more, yeah, well, more is closer to anyone, like even the random user. But also it learns from the interaction itself. So it's being trained not only to predict the next word, that's the core part, but also to do dialogue with people. And that is what's called the human in the loop and the reinforcement learning part. So it has this learning part on top of the GPT based model, right? So that is what it makes it quite special and what it makes it apt to sustain an interaction with a user. And it looks like you're really interacting with a person somehow. You always have to remember you're, you're not. This is an, it's an interaction mimicking. It's not a person that, or, or a, or an intelligent user that you have on the other side. And that was makes it special. And we've seen it come somehow. And I think this is a big leap because we didn't expect it to be so good. But it's not entirely like taking the the research world by by surprise. Research wise, I mean. So you talked about GPT, chat GPT, and similar language models as being, I'm going to try to paraphrase also to see if I understand this uh, well, um, sort of an engine that takes a lot of information that is being given to it, models it in some kind of way, creates predictive structures, and with those predictive structures creates output based on all of the information that it's received, right? Yes, I think it's correct. I would maybe substitute the word information for language. Okay, and where or what kind of what kind of input has it received? Of this particular version, let's say hmm. with GPT or or others. So maybe in general, what's super interesting and also maybe help explain the the power of these uh, very general language models is um, how they do self supervised learning. So I'm I'm not sure how long the the self-supervised learning strategy has been around in these large language models i think 2018 2019 um and a very big part of where the the model learns to basically learns its very abstract representation of language is through uh, unsupervised learning which means that you can actually just take random text in any language uh, which of course the internet is full with whether that's tweets wikipedia just basically everything, um, and these models can actually just 
run by them, sentence by sentence, and in some cases, document by document, and just without any uh, context or uh, labeling or annotation or uh, whatever, it just it just learns. And um, this is a very powerful idea because it means you can actually, with, with zero interference, just throwing uh, unstructured text at it, it, it just learns a very abstract language representation. Um, yeah, and to, to go back to what you asked, indeed. So what does it learn from? So what are these texts? Yeah, as Patrick said, it's like a lot of social media. There's a whole of Wikipedia in it, and there are books, and there's newspapers. There's plenty of data that we also don't fully know about. It's not that, in this specific case, as far as I know, uh, the full training data that is called, so this raw text that was passed on to to the network to learn uh, is not fully disclosed. So I personally, maybe maybe I haven't been paying enough attention, but I personally do not know what is the full set of training documents that the model was exposed to. So it's we know the kinds of documents, and we also know that um, there are attempts at doing curation of such documents to remove potentially harmful or toxic documents, not that this just eventually makes an atoxia or, or, you know, or a clean model. And we can even open a discussion as to whether we would want that and to what extent and who decide what's toxic and so on. But uh, apart from like knowing that there has been potentially some curation and that there's, for example, some things we know, so Wikipedia is there, books, papers, but we don't fully, we know that there's code so it, it has learned from, from code. A lot of the GitHub repositories have been used. It's yeah. used a lot of... Actually, uh, one of the uses that I've seen that I found very impressive also because I'm not a programmer of any, any acclaim is its ability to uh, interact with a user and uh, produce code in a number of uh, programming languages uh, simply on verbal commands, mm. on verbal input. It, yeah. is, uh, it is absolutely brilliant. Um, the last couple of weeks, couple of months, uh, ChatGPT and also GitHub Copilot, which is similar, except it has a direct integration with the programming environment. Um, it's completely taken over the, the, the world of software development. I've also used it along with many of my colleagues because you can actually just query very, you can actually ask it very abstract questions about how should I structure my code or I need an example of code that does this and this. And then you actually, in a lot of times, get a very, very good, uh, high-quality uh, snippet of code. So how soon can we go to four-day weekends? <laughs> uh. So ah. the, the, the critical problem um, that these models have for generating uh, programming code is actually because they often contain very subtle errors. Uh, for example, very minor syntax errors or... Um, the redundant functions that don't, don't really do anything. Um, so in the, in the work field, there's a lot of uh, talking right now about, oh, yeah, pro, you know, software developers are going to become obsolete. Um, but I a lot of people are being talked about as becoming <laughs> yeah. obsolete. Yeah. Um. But I think that the fundamental problem with all these models is the reliability. Yeah, I think in order to use them that way, as Patrick was saying, I think you need to know what you're doing. So you need to be a software engineer to be able to use this support. 
And I think in the same way, like you can't just produce text thinking that it's truthful or accurate. So one thing that I found interesting is that, you know, uh, ChatGPT can produce really good essays with excellent looking references. And these references are just made up. They don't exist. They're just made up papers with combination of authors that do not exist and pages. They look perfect because it has learned the pattern of what a reference looks like and it will be able to produce it, it's just made up. Everything that ChatGPT produces and outputs is made up, everything. It's just that in a lot of cases, it can be, I'm not sure even I wanna say correct, but like, you know. Correct by chance. Correct by chance, mm. yeah. It's mostly that. It's not retrieving any information from any external document, it's just, self-producing language or code, well, you know, strings, characters, which can happen to be correct or meaningful. So one thing, can I, one thing Please, that yeah. I think it's really crucial to remember is that ChatGPT is not Google. It's not the Google search engine. It doesn't correspond to that. It's also not, now we know we've read probably most recently about the integration with Bing and, and so on, but on its own, is not going to is not a retrieval engine. It's not gonna go, you ask it stuff, it's not gonna go out and search up information for you. Everything that it will produce is internally already like determined and acquired. And that's that. It's not doesn't have any checking to sources of information that are outside of what it's learned. And remember that it's only learned to produce sequences of characters. Based. In an interactive way. Yeah, in in a pattern that it, it that it has learned based on this large amount of information yeah. that it has been yeah. fed. There's a lot of things that I want to ask and know more about. One of the first things that I wanted to ask you talked about ethics earlier and um, uh, about the quality of this information and curation. Uh, it, it, it almost seems like nutrition to me. It's, you know, what we feed it, what is the quality of this nutrition that it's receiving? And um, we talk a lot about bias in in all kinds of artificial um, intelligence or machine learning algorithms and how inherent bias in the um, either in the information that we feed it or in the in 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 just society itself how these become self-perpetuating and also in a way that perhaps appears as sort of objective or unbiased because a machine produced it it's it just does what it understands uh, is correct or uh, or objective um, but also in terms of the accuracy of the information but you talked about it as not actually producing correct information it's just reproducing strings of characters or words in a in a predictable manner or in a matter that is statistically um, plausible let's say uh, can you say more about this these ethical questions about what um, information it's receiving or um, how one might even begin to think about curating this kind of information and where you start hitting walls with this? Yeah, I, I think this is a core question of this whole thing and is this whole development in the field. And indeed, we could talk for hours and hours uh, <laughs> about, about this. But 
So actually, I have a question for, for you. Would you want that this model is representative of our societies? So say that you interact with this model, would you want it to be sort of resonating with uh, society or not? Because, and the reason why I'm asking is that what it's learning is societal and cultural patterns that are transmitted and encoded by language because it's learning from language and language will express societal biases and cultural attitudes. And of course, it will also reproduce, I mean, learn and reproduce such patterns and such biases from only a very restricted world that it has learned from because it's been exposed to certain language and not other and also a large amount of English and also other languages, but of course lingu- English is dominant. Not everyone has access to the internet or to producing language, so some communities are probably just excluded entirely from the representation of society. So there's so much that is around this. And the moment that we start to decide that we want to curate, we have to make decisions on uh, what we want to, what is toxic, for example, what is it that we want to rebalance? Do we want to include more communities because they were excluded? But then do we know which ones? And, and how do we do this? So for me, I'm not uh, against curation per se, but it opens up a whole world of another kind of discussion. And what's key at this stage for me is not so much curation maybe, but awareness. So... What's a problem, I think, with ChatGPT, as you said, is that it's extremely credible. So it outputs stuff and you don't question it, partly because it's a machine and you go, oh, well, yeah. And it's our attitude, right? So we have to be aware of our attitude towards interacting with these tools. And, and partly because it just sounds so, it, so realistic. Yeah. yeah, so convincing. And you ask, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. And the perpetuation of stereotypes, indeed, often it's really like hitting on, you know, confirmation bias. So you already think something, maybe subconsciously, the machine will output something that will just reinforce it. And, and that's that. And we are at it. And the next language that we produce will still contain the same biases. And, and so, so I really think that the moment that we spot bias or we realize that there's something, you know, bad, I don't think we should blame the machine. We should go or like go like, oh, it's bad. It's negative for us. I think we go like, okay, let's think a second. Where does it come from? Where are my own unconscious biases? Maybe also in the language that I myself have have produced and it's been used by this model. And what can we actually see from the interaction with this machine that will make a better society? Because I think you can also see it as a mirror and go like, oh, look at this. This is actually what our texts are saying about us as a society. And do we want to curate that and sort of hide it a bit? Um, well, paradoxically, uh, um, the, the machine in this case is simultaneously neutral and non-neutral. It's neutral in the sense that it's just a mirror. Um, but of course, it also just copies all of the, all of the characteristics from the data that you feed it. In machine learning, there's the, the classic think it's decades old by now, garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. Um. 
Yeah, no, you, you, I, I like the way you, you put it that the, the, the algorithm itself is neutral, but what goes in the algorithm or the machine is n itself not neutral. How do you take this question, Malcolm? I know we've talked about this before between yeah. the two of us. How do you... Yeah, I was thinking about what Malvina said, and I was thinking with any big development, this is always an issue because there's always often the Western world who has kind of like a monopoly on, on certain things. And then other countries, for example, are slower to adapt. But then they still have to because they need to keep up or individuals come to study at the university, for example, and they need to adapt. I can look at like where I'm from in the Caribbean, St. Martin, where like uh, in the mid 2000s or so, like the internet speed was terrible. And people had so many issues um, studying if they were there, like at a US university, for example but no one was going to help them where that's concerned. So many things we had to kind of adapt to. So with this too, I think of the same thing. And then I'm like, uh, how would you go about that? Because I think ultimately most people will not really be concerned about re being very um, reflective about what they're seeing in that mirror that we were talking about. And I think that a large majority will kind of maybe <laughs> guide how you know we it's viewed. So I'm always very careful about that and then you can say yeah you can make sure that there are people in charge who are also from a diverse background but i don't know if that will be enough to you know to keep things in order and that's always the the tricky part i find yeah i, I agree with you yeah I, I really agree with you and i think that is an issue and that is why i think we all have to be concerned about mm -hmm. literacy around all this and about learning and understanding what it is. But I completely agree that uh, it's probably 90% of the users who will never be concerned with such issues and will just use it and <laughs> go on with it and also try to break it just because it's fun. And then you can make it say really like even more aggressive or toxic things. And you can, you can really misuse it in, in such easy ways. And I was, in a way, also kind of a bit surprised that what I've seen in the press, there were also a lot of attempts at misusing it. And I, I know that it's important to expose its weaknesses, but I'm not sure whether it's really good service somehow to the population to show really heavily how you can misuse these tools, which were not, you know, also in ways that, oh, it doesn't, you know, it lies. It doesn't produce factual information. It's not meant to. Yeah. No, I think actually this is a, a very important topic to, to also for this uh, podcast to clarify what it's supposed to be doing, what it can do, and what it cannot do. It appears to be um, a sentient um, organism that, that produces new information or uh, is able to process information, but it doesn't do any of this. Um, and it's important to distinguish between these things. But I also wanted to mention that these, these, um, these um, uh, practices of reinforcing biases or implicit, explicit, and, um, or otherwise uh, are existing in all manners of technology at the moment. Your, um, um, does anybody still use Facebook? Your Facebook feed is hmm. not a r neutral, random occurrence of, of um, uh, information and events, it is, uh, it, to some extent, predicting what you want to be looking at. Uh, your Google search results 
are not the same for every single person. They depend on where you are, on what your search history has been, what um, what is popular in your demographic or in your area of the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So these kind of uh, feedback loops, amplification mechanisms to uh, to our biases or to our expectations or to our wishes or what an algorithm thinks are our wishes already exist. And to, with Chat GPT, it just seems like a much bigger thing, more obvious, really, really impressive. I mean, the, the output is incredibly impressive. And maybe we can spend a few minutes talking about what it can do, what it's capable of doing that is uh, interesting, and where its limits lie. Can you give us some examples of the things that you found to be interesting and impressive? So uh, Patrick was saying about code. Uh, so one thing that I think it's doing really well is rewriting. And that is because it's all internal, right? It doesn't have to produce new information. So you say, okay, I have this text, maybe it's not written in excellent English. Can you please rewrite it a bit better for me? Or could you make it more formal? Or could you target it to an audience that would be younger or less uh, expert? And so it's really good at this. It has at some level learned some of these aspects. So what, it, what formality is somehow, uh, it has it has learned um, aspects of language that go beyond, so that abstract away and go beyond the actual just single words that you see. So it, it, it manages to, for example, rewrite text in different ways. And that is very good at. Another thing that is very good at is summarizing. Um, also making titles. So, and in that sense, it can also induce some creativity. You know, we all know, like, we write papers and we have to come up with interesting titles. And sometimes you're just a bit dead for ideas. And, you know, you have an abstract and you say, can you summarize it in one sentence? And, you know, it will just give you 20 of these sentences um, that maybe do not span so much outside of actually. So there's a limit also in creativity. But you could say, so it has, at some level, learned the concept, for example, of metaphor. So you could say, okay, can you write this title by using a metaphor in it? And it will. And it will not come up with one, but you know, you can ask 20 and more, and can you make me 50 examples? And can you stop using this word by using another word? And then eventually, maybe you have a pretty nice title. So yeah. <laughs> you said it has limits in its creativity. And as you were saying this, and later as you were describing it, I was thinking, but those limits can be overcome if you, the user, are not limited in your creativity of the prompts that you ask of it, right? I think it's a really interesting point that you're making. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's somewhat true because it is an interaction. So you can really, but it's a little bit, again, what we were saying, like in order to get the best out of code, you have to be a software engineer. Yeah. So in order to get some creativity, you have to be a human and, uh, you know, interact with this, try to steer it into a direction that actually it's then prompting some creativity through your own creativity, which is the same as, you know, through your own programming skills, you can make it produce pretty good code, but you have to know what you're doing. It's not doing it just by itself. In the, in the same vein, I found it to be a brilliant study tool. Um, 
you, you mentioned that uh, it's very good at rewriting, summarizing, and uh, explaining things essentially in other words. Um, so uh, last block when I was studying for exams, um, obviously there are some uh, challenging concepts. I think uh, this specifically was about, um, for the course we had to know what uh, hidden Markov models uh, were and uh, all sorts of variants of hidden Markov models. Um, and for the same course, we also had to know what uh, finite state automata were. So when you study from your books and, uh, and the lecture slides, obviously you have uh, some vague idea of what's going on. But in uh, more than once, I used ChatGPT as a, as a way to explain concepts or rephrase concepts by using contrasts. So I asked it, so how does a finite state automata compare to a hidden Markov models? And then it did, so uh, using as essentially fact-checking the things that you learn in your course, in your book, in your slides, um, I found it to be very useful for, because it explained to me perfectly well that, so um, in this case, oh yeah, the hidden Markov model is probabilistic and the finite state automata is essentially um, a, a linear, um, it's called, um, it gives the same output every time. Mm -hmm. And th these kinds of uh, ways to contrast concepts and rephrasing, rewriting things um, was for me like, wow, this is, this is so useful. But again, it goes back to what Malvina was saying. You have to know what yeah. you're doing. Yes. Right? Yeah. So uh, I have to admit, when I came into this podcast, or not just this podcast recording, but in general, whenever I think about chat GPT, for my own use as an educator, as um, as a tool that my students may use, but also just as a as an individual with uh, a life outside of all of this and uh, producing content that isn't related to university, I find the 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 output impressive. But and I've used it a few times just to see what it can do. But I have to admit that I'm very uninterested in using it for basically anything because I don't want it it seems like it's going to I don't rest necessarily need somebody to do the work that I want to be doing I want to be doing work that I'm interested in and I want to be engaged in it but as we're having this discussion I'm coming up with ways that feel meaningful to me um, about how I can use this and the words that I've been jotting down are discussion, brainstorming um, and a way of enhancing my way of thinking and asking questions about a topic basically a, a, a bouncing board something that I can mm -hmm. uh, at any moment in my life uh, spar with, have a discussion with ask questions, see what it produces, see what I find valuable, and pick threads to, to, to follow. Yeah, remembering that if you're asking for any facts, sure. you always have to, like, you know, know what you're asking somehow. You have to know what the correct answer somehow is or be able to check that because it doesn't really know facts. It could, but it doesn't necessarily. So I think, for example, what uh, Patrick was saying was possible because he knew that then eventually something might be wrong or not, yeah. but he needed a way to, re yeah, to to take a different viewpoint maybe, yeah. um, and see the same concepts rewritten in with other words. Or I mean, I think it's really interesting to to think of the power of language in in this, and how sometimes we just need to 
look at things from a different perspective to to better understand them and you know you could actually uh, this is something that you could ask the model can you give me you know a different perspective on this text um and that is something that can happen and as you say you don't want to you know you didn't come up with ideas for using it but there are things that we uh, at university also we have to do like writing reports about committees and so on and if you just jot down a few bullet points it will write it for you and that is not something that I am so, I, I honestly say this, I'm not so keen, I don't think it's even like an interesting part of my job. Of course, being in the committee and discussing the content, yes. Mm. Having to write a final report, if I can jot down a few bullet points and the report is written for me in good English and proper syntax. And this is something that is very good at because it doesn't have any factual knowledge to double check outside of, of course, I'll reread it, but is it bad? I don't think so if it's something that has to be like my own paper I want my own of course input in it I want to write it as I want it but a document which is bureaucracy and has to be stored somewhere it has to have some content maybe we can either allow then to just have bullet points as a report or I see nothing really wrong in having uh, a system help me write save time uh, rephrasing my bullet points if the end user uh, storage bureaucracy wants it in in written form in like fluent form i'll take it even a step further why produce these things in advance anyway and not at the point of need why not produce give it its input and have these reports produced when necessary and by the people who need them in whatever language, in whatever breadth, in whatever depth, in whatever summarized version they want. So actually, uh, as I, I, I was smiling as you were talking about this because uh, you won me once more with uh, possible uses for GPT. <laughs> I also yeah. have uh, very little, uh, as most You can people, also write uh, Sinterklaas uh, poems, yeah? Oh, pretty good that. oh yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you might not want to because you might, do, you might want to, but it's actually, that's the kind of thing that it could be fun to see. And I think there's nothing fully wrong with that unless you really want to go out and about and just claim it's your own. So I think disclosing is crucial. And that is also a point that I really care in terms of education, disclosing that you've used it. If it was meant to be used or allowed to be used, just say it. If it wasn't, then you shouldn't. Mm. It's, you know, it's not that it's bad on its own also in terms of education. I mean, it can be useful. I think... You shouldn't pass as your own something which wasn't fully your own. And starting to also teach students how to engage with it. And that is not just bad, but you have to be careful because you have to know what it can do, what it cannot do. And, you know, maybe just get into a conversation with students on how they might want to use it. And, and that there are possible uses of it. If your learning goal is to learn how to write a full essay from scratch, then you shouldn't. I was just going to say that um, I think some students, for example, really struggle with certain parts of their papers. Like I know people who really, they're very good about the content. When it comes to writing an introduction section, they take days to just, just jot down three sentences. Yeah. And then I've tried that with ChatGPT to see how that goes. And it's so good at like giving you 
some kind of frame of reference, like or some bullet point. So you're like, oh yeah, that's that's a tone I can take. Um, some people struggle with tone, and then it gives you some kind of like a blueprint so that you can maybe edit it if it's not completely fine. And I think it really helps students like that, for example, or anyone in education or outside of that, really. So that's just something I wanted to add that it could be very helpful. I mean, it depends on how you look at it, like you were saying. Yeah. yeah. So have you experienced uh, Malcolm, Patrick, in your own courses? Have you had, um, um, have you seen explicit policies for use of chat GPT? I haven't. Have you, Patrick? Nope. No. Do you have a policy, Malvina? I just we started having one in my course Ooh. a couple mm. of weeks ago. No, I don't um, yet, but the next course I'm teaching is the ethics in it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll have a lot to talk about that from, uh, from all possible perspectives. Um, I know, so as our uh, group of... Uh, it's called the GroenLP, so the, the Groningen NLP uh, people. We've been asked, so we had an information evening about ChatGPT mid-January, and then we've been asked to sort of consult with, for example, all vice deans of faculties who are concerned about, so all vice deans are in charge of education, each in their own faculty, and they're concerned with uh, how to incorporate it and what policies there should be. And I know that the Roch are working on policies. Yeah. And they're very much, I, I was appreciating how much on board actually the the whole university is with this. They've, they've taken it very seriously as they should. And I like it that they really involve people from, you know, the experts, like to better understand really what it is. So they really asked us to go there in the college from Mistour and just explain what does it do. And I thought it was a very good move and also they've been talking to teaching uh, experts and to see how how we should go about this. And I think having policies is going to take some time. Mm. Yeah. It, it's, so, it just, so funny, it just occurred to me that um, when I was in primary school, um, Wikipedia was new. Mm. And I very distinctly remember just, just a similar discussion going on with Wikipedia books. You know, initially you weren't allowed to use Wikipedia because you had to use you had to use books and you had to uh, do primary sources. And in all our generations, we've had steps like this, yeah. whether yeah. it's Wikipedia or calculators or dictionaries or the internet. There's yeah. always at some point a step where we go. But what are students going to do? Isn't this cheating? Are they learning anything? So, I'm also wondering. Are students involved in these discussions? Because this is, for me, very important to understand how students uh, may be compelled to use these tools, what they want to use them for and to supplement their studying. Yeah, so I, I think until now, maybe not enough. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, we've mentioned this also in the meeting with the, the chair of the board of the university. And he was very receptive to that. He said, yeah, we really need to talk to students and engage in in a, in a broader conversation as like what have they already experienced because of course they have tried it and they've conceived ways of possibly using it yeah um and i think we have to ask and that will also make emerge i find what are the ways of assessing or the way of using it that we really have to rethink maybe we've been actually <laughs> using some assessment forms that are maybe not targeted well at the learning goals or a bit pointless or you know it's it's a challenge 
for us as educators, I find, which we really have to take on. And it's going to cost us time and energy, but it's a beautiful challenge. Yeah. And we can only do it with students. We need to know uh, what they also like. Yeah, as you just said, Malcolm, I, I really like that, that students might struggle with introductions. And I have to say that now when I write papers, the introduction is the best part for me, but I'm old, <laughs> older. And yeah. um, it's something you learn with experience and it's really, it's really daunting to just write introduction. So maybe we should, we should have not asked this of students to start with, and we should have helped them from the very beginning to find a good way to write an introduction. And maybe this is now making this emerge, right? It's hard, but maybe we shouldn't have asked. To st we were asking maybe too much. It's or just not providing the right structure. Exactly. So yeah. it's, it's it, with education, with higher education more specifically, and uh, a lot of other matters, we often make a lot of assumptions about um, how people relate to an experience or how people react within a particular context and we don't really challenge our assumptions and um, one of the things that I find a lot of things interesting about this um, uh, chat GPT revolution let's call it um, uh, one of them partly it's very interesting to me because we are just coming out of another higher education crisis which is the COVID pandemic and this inability to to continue working the way we were working three years ago a system that had um developed itself over decades and decades and decades and had become, what do we call it? We, it had become complacent. I think this is a good way to think about it. We made a lot of assumptions. We made a lot of little turns down the road and we found ourselves in a particular model of higher education, which became completely disrupted during the COVID pandemic because we couldn't be in lecture rooms. We couldn't do um, the kind of exams that we wanted to, et cetera, et cetera. And it, at great cost, forced us to rethink our assumptions in many ways. It forced us to shed complacent ways of thinking about assessment and uh, complacent ways of thinking about what it is that we do in higher education, what skills we're learning, what skills we should not be teaching or evaluating, because indeed they have been supplanted by technologies or new methods of doing things that are more realistic to society and more reflective of society. And I think ChatGPT, unfortunately, coming immediately after one other big crisis is going to do exactly the same thing. We live no. in interesting times. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> continuously. Um, and indeed, this idea of... I see a lot of merit in, in, in an essay or paper assignment. I think there's a lot of value and there's a reason why it's been a sort of model, a star model even of a higher education assessment because it does cover a breadth of learning objectives, the ability to find information, the ability to integrate this information, the ability to have discourse with yourself and argumentation, all kinds of good things. But at the same time, we have based our models on such broad assumptions that that students and uh, assessors can distinguish between all of these learning objectives within this, this I'm going to call it a mess of an essay, not because the essay is, uh, is problematic, but because all of these learning objectives are confounded with one another. Your writing style is confounded your, with your ability to form and, um, and uh, structure arguments. 
but they're not the same thing. Your 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 language skills and your argumentation skills are separate issues, and they're confounded in in an essay. And very often, I read something that is very beautifully written, and I'm compelled to give it a very high grade until I take a step back and go, wait, it's beautiful language. What what does it say? Sounds like ChatGPT. It sounds like <laughs> ChatGPT, indeed. And it's very difficult to untangle those things. So we're lacking a lot of structure in how we are conceiving our learning objectives. First, I mean, we're lacking a lot of uh, maturity in defining the right learning objectives that are meaningful to current society, that are meaningful to the users of our courses. I call them users. I don't... Uh, the, the students in our courses... Um, to the needs of future society, which is itself a, a very big abstract topic that most of us are uh, not really capable of um, understanding what society's needs are going to be in 10 years. Imagine five years ago that we would be sitting mm -hmm. in the studio talking about a global pandemic changing higher education, chat GPT type of um, uh, models. We had no idea five years ago. Or we had... I, uh, you may have had ideas because you work in this in this uh, in this industry but the rest of us had no idea that something like this was even remotely possible within uh, the scope of our lifetimes let alone five years um, within um, this is what I find very compelling about chat GPT that it really kicks us in a very abrupt way to think again about what we're teaching why we're teaching it and how we're assessing it I fully agree, and I think it's uh, we can uh, we should really take the positives of this, and you can only do it, I think, with a lot of awareness of the dangers too. Yeah. And in order to get there, you need to have some knowledge of how it works. So I think the first step in all this is that we all take responsibility as educators and as students in learning more about this, learning, you know, like uh, agreeing that we are all on board together to make this better, uh, the situation better as well. And, you know, in, in education and in using these tools also for the society. Yeah, not everyone is in higher education. It's a very small part, but everyone will have the possibility to use it. And we do have, I think, a responsibility to know more about how it works and just the, just the basics, what it is and what it can do and what it cannot do, that's already crucial. And I think we all have to agree that's going to be part of any component of higher education. You have to know how this stuff works. And then we can interact together and try to figure out how to best incorporate it in education and what are our learning goals as, as society as well. And, and I... Uh, no, I I, I just completely agree that this is a big challenge and we all have to be willing to take it. It's not that, you know, we are in a very privileged position here and we have to take the responsibility of that as well. So let's talk a little bit about advice. What would you advise a student, you know, your kids, my kid, your students in your courses, uh, fellow teachers, administrators? What kind of advice can we think about 
giving to each other about how to use this today, right now, in February 2023, because this is likely going to be very different in June 2023. So how can a student use it meaningfully, let's call it ethically, without going too much into detail of what we mean by this? So the the first thing probably is uh, is like, try to bid. Um, a lot of people I spoke to, like they hadn't tried it. They had opinions, but they hadn't even tried it. I think you should try it a little bit and you should not try it immediately in your homework, let's say, because you don't know yet. Um, and I think first you have to acquire some knowledge about it. So what I would recommend... So one thing that we've done with this information evening, for example, we've also made a, a curated video. Yeah, we'll link it's to the video and the right. material at the... And the description of the podcast. And, you know, I had asked my kids to be there because I think it's accessible. It's a level that is accessible for them as well. So I think high school students could benefit from looking a little bit at, at that. But also we were planning to have some information nuggets, like mm -hmm. videos, together with the Yantina Thomas uh, school. We haven't done that yet. It's, you know, time is limited. But what I would recommend is to try, and it's very complicated, but try to reach out for experts who can point you to some information or explain you things. And that is not something that any student can do, of course. Mm -hmm. But what I would recommend now then is try it a bit, but handle with care. Because you don't, you don't know what it can do, what it cannot do. And you also don't know that it can be, I mean, I want, yeah, it can be dangerous uh, at several levels. And if you don't know how to manipulate, it's like it's like fire. I think I've used this. Uh, That's uh, an interesting analogy. I like uh, this. Yeah, you know, it's it's fire has brought a lot of enormous development to the human to humans, um, and also for the good. I mean, we have developed in a certain way because of fire and warming up and cooking and mm -hmm. and all that, and it's a distinguishing aspect of of humans but you need to know how to use it it can be very dangerous um and you need before you give uh, a lighter or so to a child you know y you don't do that you explain no. and this is something that's been criticized a lot also of these big companies that they've, they've thrown it in to society without much explaining of what actually it is and so but i think that's progress has always been like that yeah and so, it's yeah. not that you know now we are we've lived with fire for very long and we we've learned to some extent what to tell our kids or what to tell people and how to deal with it in a way that is productive and positive and not only negative still we yeah. see the negative side of the yeah, of, yeah. of fire we live with it and I think we're still at such early stages that it's very hard. So what do you tell your students? Yeah, try it. And be open about it. Be open about it. Always mention. Yeah. So I wouldn't use it in, in homework right now because unless you really have had a little mini course yeah. on what it is. And in any case, if you use it, tell your teachers. So this is... so. Uh, in I, I mentioned that I have a chat GPT policy this semester because I have a course with a lot of assignments where, where students create material so r very open for uh, using chat GPT and so I was sort of compelled to have a policy to clarify how to use this also because I really appreciate the opportunity to be open to my students about this 
and indeed the the policy I have is you know I'm not I I, I won't and I cannot ban it in any way uh, but if you feel compelled to use it uh, I would like you to to document in your assignment how you used it with screenshots with what kind of prompts you use what kind of information or what kind of output it gave to you how you use this output what you thought of this output how it helped you generate the material that um, we asked you to generate um, and I'm curious how my students are going to use this, if at all, if they're going to mention it. I know that there is w one of the uh, recurring themes in in education is this is this element of mistrust between students and teachers, hmm. which I find incredibly unfortunate, but also realistically speaking, it's always there. I know that there is hesitation from students to use uh, tools that they might perceive as being cheating tools. Hmm or what is fair use and what is not fair use, and what if I do this and my teacher is uh, unhappy about this and I get a fail, is that worth the risk? Maybe I should hide it. So I try as much as I can to at least explicitly say that if you describe it, if you mention it, this is not going to be uh, held against you, but we need to have this conversation. But I'm curious how it will end up being used. Oh, oh. Hmm. let us know. I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of students in this course, so yeah. hopefully I will have some examples to share with you. Oh, that, I think that will be super interesting. And, and related to what you said, one thing that I think is really important is that the narrative around this is not like, oh no, this thing happened and now students are going to cheat. I think that's just closing like you oh. know it's putting a barrier immediately on actually what is instead crucial which is yeah trust and interaction in trying to find out a good way to go forward with this development because it's going to stay it's mm. not something that we will ban or it doesn't make any sense you might even want to ban it in tests or so they'll have it in real life so we yeah. should actually learn together how to best deal with it. It can become its use, its ethical and good use can simply be a learning objective in e every program, Yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah. How to actually interact with such a tool yeah. and be aware of potential consequences and also of all the biases and stereotypes that it carries. That mm -hmm. whenever, it's not only how to mm -hmm, use mm -hmm. it, but that whenever you get some, you know, you should be aware of actually what the consequences are and what the inputs are and all the cultural and societal aspects of it. It's yeah. not just a writing tool in a way. It is, but it, it carries more with it and yeah. we need to be aware. Yeah. Malcolm, Patrick, how, how does this seem to you, this description that um, uh, about the, the nature of trust in education and the way that you interact with your assignments and your uh, educators uh, but also what advice do you have for your teachers or others teachers about how to approach a tool like this in their education you'd like to go first oh uh, sure <laughs> so i actually uh, wrote down a piece of advice because i i don't think how important this can be underestimated which is um, assume that anything a large model tells you is potentially false I think so also now we live in an era of misinformation and social media and the internet and a lot of information is being spread around. And I think more important than ever, and actually ChatGPT is only like a small 
component of the of the um, broader development. But I think uh, epistemology and you know what is what is true, what is truth, what is knowledge, um, is is more important than ever. So th- just in general, the, the the question what what am I what am I what am I what am I the questions that I'm answering the things that I'm writing down. Uh, not just is it fluent, does it does it sound nice, but also what what does it say? Just more than ever. Yeah, I agree. And I think in general, I just want us to be more open minded because I think, like you were saying earlier, Tassos, we always go through some generational change where we feel like, oh, it's it's the end of the world. When actually, there's all if if people really want to cheat, for example, they will find ways. You know, I. I know that there are cases of people who have paid people to write sections of their thesis or maybe the whole thesis. If you have the means, you can make it happen. Um, one thing I did want to bring up is because I realize in my circle of people, very they're very cynical and they think like, ah, eventually these things will be put behind a paywall and then only certain groups of people will be using them. But then in, in hearing you speak, I was, I was thinking, oh, maybe it is going to just be free on some level. So I was wondering what, you all think of this because do you think it will be there'll always be a version maybe not chat gpt in particular but some model that's free that we can use or do you think we will reach a point where yeah it's just behind a paywall and only certain people use it uh it's i think yeah you you brought up a really interesting point which Mm -hmm. is access um so as you said so when when i started to hear this narrative about the cheating and like you know oh but uh, chat gpt will write your essays you'll write your thesis it's always been like that there's always been someone who could uh, afford to pay someone else to potentially write that or ask their brother or their sister or their mom or dad and in a way having a tool that is actually accessible to everyone makes it even more you know fair and inclusive at some level, if you want to think about it that way, right? Still, it's not clear that such tools will stay open to everyone. Uh, I think at some uh, level of usage, yes, there will be some more pro uh, usage with APIs and with potentially more complex interaction that will be under a paywall, probably, and under subscription and so. But I think there will be models and. I mean, what we're talking about is ChatGPT, but it's not that the other companies are not, like, you know, they're working on it. And what I find really crucial is that public institutions stay on board. And I think this is really important that we don't think that, oh, because companies are doing that, we will never have the power to compete. Right now, we don't. (laughs) We don't have computing power. Uh, We don't have that money. But I think we should really stay in the game as much as possible and there should be funding for this kind of research and the impact that it has and to ensure that there will always be free models and controllable as well, also in terms of the data that goes in and interpretation of decisions that is really accessible to the broader world community so that we ensure that there will always be like free research on, on the public research on this and uh, there will be yeah there will be subscriptions there already are i think you can already uh pay and have priority access in case uh it, the system is at capacity and so on that's with everything but, but it's also likely that there's going to be in the in the near or or further future uh open source versions of 
these um, large language models and other machine learning algorithms, right? There, and there already are already. Yeah. There are already. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so absolutely. Good. The good news is that many of the fundamental transformer models. So. Um, essentially what ChatGPT and Bing and like uh, Google's uh, part is based on, they're still free. Obviously, they, they, they aren't oh. trained on the huge amounts of data that large companies has. But, but so far, so good. It's possible to more or less build your own. Yeah, and let's also distinguish what we mean by free here. It's, um, there's always... Um, you're always giving something to this google google search is free but it's not free in some ways you're you're still donating something to google they would not be doing this uh, if they weren't making a large amount of money through your use of uh, um, of its search engine and i think it's the same with with chat gpt as you said actually opening the chat function meant that uh, uh, now it's being trained for free in a in a huge, huge way, and in a way that uh, the the company itself couldn't do without such a large number of users, right? Yeah, of course. That was one of the reasons, yeah. of course, that they were very interested in in doing that, mm. because they they have accumulated an amount of interactions yeah. with the model that is incredible. Yeah, yeah. we're course. all giving information yes. or uh, tools or uh, whatever it is that we're um, we're giving away. Yeah, I find it interesting. I'm also very curious about what we can expect in the next... Um, you know, th now that our eyes have been opened to it, maybe we can hazard some predictions. I'm very hesitant about this, but you mentioned earlier that GPT-4 is going to come out sometime in the spring, from what um, yeah. I understand. Any idea what it's going to bring with it? Oh, um, well, so for, for one thing, so now the, the data that the model has been trained on um, is capped at, uh, I think, 2021. Yeah, I remember that. Things will uh, change because they will, of course, the new model will also have access to more recent data. And again, we have said we shouldn't use it as a sort of fact checking. So, sure. but of course, it will be exposed to more facts and knowledge and names and things new that have happened. And, you know, uh, of course, all that information which is passed on through language is going to be there while it wasn't there now. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But also, I guess the complexity of the model will be higher, meaning that it will be even better at fluency, at making connections uh, across, like, portions of discourse, meaning that the the quality of the more abstract level patterns that it will have learned is going to be better. So it's going to be even more um, credible looking <laughs> and better at everything. So imagine what it's doing now, better. We talked about where it where its limits are and how it as you said, Patrick, also one basic assumption is that assume that there is going to be falsehood within its output. A lot, little, some, not at all, but assume that there will be some in its output. But its fluency, we can trust that because we can also ascertain it for ourselves. We can see that it's fluent. We can see that its use of language is, is flexible and it's good. It can create output directed at five-year-olds and um, any other level. So if we make the assumption, and I think it's not a 
difficult assumption to make that in higher education we should be asking ourselves to learn um, thinking uh, thinking skills, let's call it, or argumentation skills and information facts, etc. But we also currently aim to teach fluency. Does that mean that we can start forgetting about fluency as a learning objective? Uh, <laughs> I. I don't think so, but I just speak out of intuition and feeling because I love language and I would like that everyone is still able to write really good language. Sure. Uh, but I don't know. I think it's a challenge that we have to take and it's, a, it's, a, it's an angle that we definitely have to include in our thoughts on how to develop uh, further education because it's there. And, you know, in the past we really cared about spelling I mean, yeah. we, maybe not we, but... Numeracy, right? Basic, yeah, numeracy, uh, big yeah. calculations. We don't care so much anymore, right? Because we have a spell checker, so whatever you type, and then it's going to be get fixed and so on. And yeah. I think we're talking about another level of also of reasoning. I mean, fluency does not exist just as a set of rules on its own. Mm -hmm. um, that is more like spelling. But so it, it entails, and it's more connected to thinking. And I think we probably still have to foster that. Uh, but I, I, don't, I can't read the no, future. No, it's, it's not about answers, right? It's about no, feelings. Like yeah. you said, it's about thinking, how does this sit with me as an yeah. educator, as a, as a parent, as a, as, a, as a citizen of the world? How do I want my world to develop? What do you guys think, Patrick, Malcolm? Uh, you, you know, do you, uh, these skills that you feel... <laughs> relieved not to have to pay as much attention to so you can focus on something else are you feeling that there's a humanity that is being lost in in outsourcing these kind of uh, skills to a machine or or something else yeah i'm always very optimistic about these things i feel like well i try to be at least i feel like you know we'll always keep some sort of as long as we stay critical and we someone or some group is like trying to you know, keep these things in check. Um, but yeah, I feel very optimistic about it. I feel like you can still retain, like, you know, retain like that, the humanity part of, of it and use it for other things. I think the benefits of possibly using these things um, in the future outweigh the fears we might have, which to me is often the case with these things. We, there's always a big fear and we let that dictate how we feel about the, the total um, product. So I prefer at least, like you said, you, you don't know, but I prefer to be optimistic and think if we're responsible with it, we will be fine, you know? And those skills that we were talking about, we'll still retain them. They might look a bit different, like how we look at them, but they're still there, you know? We still care about spelling to some degree. You know, you still have to like <laughs> consider it a bit, but it, we just might, how we look at it might change a bit. And I personally don't think that's an issue all the time. At yeah, least. absolutely. I, I concur with, uh, with both of you. I think the best analogy that we have is the introduction of the calculator. I also remember from primary school that um, you know when, when I had to like do additions and subtractions, that the teacher was very adamant that we were never going to have a calculator in our pocket. Well, uh, look how that turned out. I think I think it will. The introduction of large language models will probably have some effect in a negative on uh, how well generally people use language but as you mentioned um, there's a lot of positives as, as well so let's stay optimistic and say sure maybe we'll become slightly less good at writing 
but we'll maybe become better at, you know, having creative dialogues with machines, which in turn may help us become more creative. So, yeah, related to creativity, I also want to jump in the optimistic uh, <laughs> train. Um, I remember when this, uh, you know, the game Go. So there was this uh, machine uh, that uh, beat uh, a, a champion. And at some point in this game, it was a famous game, and it made a very strange move. And somebody, the commentator said, well, that's a mistake from the machine. So it's really not a human move. That's not, you know, it's a mistake. It turned out the machine won, and it was actually a brilliant move. And you learn from it. Yeah, so it gives you a perspective that is not your own. Uh, it's different. And it's not that people have stopped to play Go. And I was talking to a friend recently, and he was saying something similar related to chess. You know, you can't beat a chess machine these days. So you have the best chess player, Carson, is not going to beat a chess machine. Still, chess is as hot as ever. Uh, people still enjoy playing chess. They haven't mislearned or dislearned playing chess they use it as a tool you have to be careful how you use it but it maybe shows you also different ways of doing the game and if you think about language i mean the combinations and the games in chess you know the the the, the creativity potential of language and the combinatorial potential of language is even like so much bigger than than chess so Maybe we can conceive it as a tool that will just stay with us and help us uh, look at language and fluency and creativity. And as you said before, right? I mean, we have to interact with it. Maybe it's actually going to enhance us somehow as long as we stay very conscious of the potential consequences. Because, you know, chess is chess. Language models and the biases and the stereotypes and all that. And careful, but... Maybe there's a, a beauty <laughs> to it. Yeah. No, I really appreciate this um, this positive attitude. It's very, very easy to go down a cynical path with this and to um, to assume an attitude that things are going to be lost rather than change. Change is a difficult thing in general, uh, and when it comes to discussing aspects of our expression aspects of our humanity that we 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 take for granted it, it's very easy to um to fall back on this fear that you were talking about earlier malcolm mm. so i really appreciate that you all take this positive attitude because i think also you're you're helping me um, um take a more positive feeling towards this uh, language, as you said, Malvina is also extremely dear to me, and my my first instinct is to say, but this is a this is an aspect of my personality and my character, the color that comes with me, um, that I don't want to outsource. But indeed, if you don't think about it as outsourcing, and it's or not just think about it, if you don't use it as outsourcing, and instead use it as a way to learn use it as a way to be more open to possibilities and to um, to develop I think there's a there's a bright future ahead um, in in the use of such yeah and I algorithms. think staying positive will also help us facilitate a safer deployment 
yeah. which is not in place now. It's been just thrown in. Let's see. Sure. But if we manage not to block it, which will not have good consequences, if we stay positive, I think we will really help like to make this, uh, you know, a sustainable development for the whole of society where, you know, right now it's, yeah, it's a bit of chaos. Yeah. So I think we need to help people to figure out how to use it. But if we are going to stay very negative and fearful about this, we will not manage. Yeah. Pandora's box has been opened, so yeah. now we just have to uh, deal with the consequences. Yeah. There's no way yeah. to uh, do it. Well, I hope that this episode helps a little bit towards this, helping inform uh, people about its limits, its uses, its possibilities, its background, and some of its potential uses in the future. I'm really grateful for your time and for your ideas and uh, your your passion for language and these language models and for sharing your, your thoughts uh, with our listeners. Malcolm, any closing remarks on this topic? How do you... No, I, I echo it. I just think in, in talking about optimism, of course, it might be more long-term optimism. There will be hiccups. There will be things that we don't enjoy, we don't like. We were talking about, you know, making sure that certain groups are represented or, you know, those things are, cannot be forgotten within the optimism. But I just mean long-term. History has shown us that if you give things time and you really work on them, you can make it work, you know. Like, like Patrick just said, we, we have to deal with the reality that it is here. And I think the optimism is framed by the reality that it's already here, you know. So I am optimistic and I'm, I'm happy that we had this discussion. And hopefully um, when things develop, we might talk about it some more and have more insight by that point. Yeah, maybe we'll talk to you again next year and see what. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'd love that. How this episode has aged. <laughs> but uh, I, I realize how much I really enjoy talking about this. Is every time something new comes up and ideas, because it's so much in development still, and I really appreciate that. That actually this is brought to the general conversation. I think we should do this all the time. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. And thank you also to the listeners who made it to the end of this from what I see very long episode there's a lot to talk about um, and I also wonder what uh, our listeners thoughts on this are and um, our channels of communication are always open either through Instagram or through email to tell us your, your thoughts thank you for being here this podcast was a production of the University of Harmony